Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. It's a sort of a different kind of podcast because I'm talking with another podcaster, Daniel Engelotta, the impresario, a word I have to use a lot more often these days, the impresario of the age of Jackson, which is one of my favorite history podcasts. Daniel, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Impresario. That's one of those $10 fancy grad school words, isn't it? Well, I was uh, Laura Arricchio, who's uh, the Fordham um, dean of the downtown campus. She was tweet, uh, tweeting the other day. We were tweeting back and forth. Her great-grandfather, on his immigration papers, he announces himself as an impresario. Oh, nice. I know. Uh, back, I said back in the 90s, like the late 90s, you were, far, you were like in diapers at the time. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a trend, you know, with the tech companies to call, have like the chief technology officer of WOW. And things like that. And I just want to be, I want to be in a college so cool that I can be an impresario and have that deputy impresarios nice. and assistant impresarios and deputy assistant impresarios. That'd be great. What's the first like fancy $10 word you learned as an undergrad? Because my, my answer is eschatological. Yeah, that's I knew like... that already. So that's, uh, no, um, yeah. What's the first fancy? Probably amenitize. I was reading Eric oh. Fogelin, of course. Amenitize. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. That, that's a, that's a, that's like a $15 word. It's a, it was pretty, it was pretty heavy. I was pretty pleased with myself. Um, nice. it, and maybe something in Kant. I don't know. But mm. so. Um, Dialectic and all that. So, I've you know, I'm listening to this Age of Jackson podcast and I, you know, inescapably notice that the guy doesn't have a Southern accent or a Western <laughs> accent. So, uh, you know, who are you and where do you come from? And has anyone well, checked your papers? <laughs> Trust me, many, many people, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, many people have checked my papers. So, um, g'day, everyone. Um, I'm originally <laughs> from Australia. Um, we're, you know. we're in Australia. This will be more precise. This is a yeah, sophisticated yeah. and cosmopolitan audience. That you're sure. So, I hail from the great state of Queensland. Oh, really? Um, in the region of the great southeast. Uh, I was born on the Sunshine Coast, but I spent most of my time um, in Brisbane, which is the capital of uh, Queensland. Mm -hmm. And have you ever been bitten by anything poisonous in Australia? And how did you avoid it if you were not? Uh, not poisonous, but I've been bitten by plenty of animals. Uh, snakes, reptiles, um, ants. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there an ant in Australia that like carries away babies or, or can, can kill you with uh, one bite or something like that? Cause I, yeah, I there's plenty of ants that are poisonous that can like kill you within like five minutes or something like that. Luckily not in Queensland. There mm -hmm. are ants in Queensland, like fire ants that will basically like make you swell up like mm -hmm. insanely and make your body useless. Um, your body, and, make your body useless. Is that what the yeah, doctors say? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, so, and if you're not, that kind of has a ripple on effect that if they get you something else might because you're paralyzed. Yeah, I guess a platypus could come by and like you know spur you to death or whatever they do. You know, look, platypuses are deadly as well. They actually they are. like so they're they're not as deadly obviously as like crocodiles or anything. But if you sure. mess with them, they have the ability to like really scratch you and um, 
because they're quite they 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 are they can be dangerous, particularly when they're protecting. I, I I've you know um so I went to Oxford for my doctorate, and um I never met an Australian who wasn't deeply proud in the viciousness and deadliness of Australian wildlife. <laughs> mm. I think I think it's kind of. I don't know. It's it's kind of like a lazy patriotism. Like we have all the most dead, <laughs> we have all the most deadly animals in the world, and people seem to like fear us. So yeah. it's, it's kind of like having a surplus in the army, I guess. I Release the platypodes. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but your last name would be, as any discerning Zambone point out, would point out, has a vowel on the end. So, are you one of the? <laughs> um, are you Italy's contribution to the civiliz- uh, Australian civilization? I am. So my Nuno and Nuna um, fled uh, nice. Sicily. Um, so they they were Sicilian. Um, mm-hmm. They are Sicilian, I should I'm say. sorry. Go on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my grandfather served in the Italian Navy during World War II um, after Italy loses and eventually backs the Allies um, coming around to their senses. Um, and the war is over, you know, Italy's into depression and all that yeah. jazz. So um, they they flee for um, for Australia. What's funny is that my great grandfather, I discovered, went to America, and he lived in Connecticut in Newark um, for a couple of months. And um, when World War One broke out, he tried to apply for American citizenship, but was denied and was kicked out. Yeah. Um, and I found out that my grandfather tried to go back to America, but was also denied precisely because his father was denied. So they kind of had to go to Australia. They but, finally, so finally, after your father's generation, they for, we for, INS forgot. Something oh, uh, like that. Yeah. And they finally, a galata was let in. It's, it, you well, had to go all the way through really, Australia. What's really funny is um, my wife, I did my master's at Yale Divinity School and my wife got a job, which is based in Connecticut, but my wife got a job in Newark, Connecticut. Hmm. And we were able to see where his residence was, where my great grandfather, who I never met, um, where he was for a couple of months, um, uh, loading mattresses, I discovered. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a weird psychic connection. I think the majority of Italians, I, I have to check, I, I this is not my, NMPD, not my period, dear. But um I think the majority of Italian immigrants who came over were more or less seasonal temporary labor. I think something like 60% of people from Italy return, even from the United Mm -hmm. States. Um, You know, you see this all the time in England, uh, Germany, and so on. You see these little outliers of Italian communities, which are the the few that did not return back to Italy. Hmm, That's interesting. Yeah. So Uh, they make that, they make their way to Australia and, um, my father and his family grew up on the tip near the tip of Queensland. You know, if you look at the Australian map, you see the point. Cairns, right? I mean, that's that's way. Cairns, yeah. Um, so they're they're like three hours above Cairns in oh Innisfail, and that's um, a lot of Italian immigrants uh, are there because they're hired to uh, to cut the sugar cane because oh, like, they're cheap. It's like it's like Mississippi. Um, yeah, so they're very cheap labor, um, and basically most Italian immigrants are over in Melbourne or in North Queensland. Um, so yeah, and then um, yeah, like uh, they grew up with all the anti-Italian discrimination that uh, they faced, and um, my dad did the worst thing possible and married a, 
a Protestant Anglo-Saxon immigrant who was the daughter of divorce. So he was the rebel of the family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my father did kind of the same thing. Um, you know, he found someone from Iowa. So that's about as, <laughs> you know, for, from a New, for a New Jersey Italian Roman Catholic, that was about as, as exotic as you can get. Mm. Um, so you then, you know, and then the rest of you, the people, said about, you know, introducing one of Australia's great gifts to the 21st century, the flat white. <laughs> yes, we we work on it. Although I'm drinking, what am I drinking this morning? I'm drinking a drinking a latte this morning. No, oh, I know. There, where's your ethnic solidarity? So um, somehow, my machine can only do so much. <laughs> how did you how did you get interested in American history? Not to ask a question that probably hun- literally hundreds of Americans have asked, um, but I know that a lot of people would say to me. Um, you know, why'd you do American history in Oxford, which is a complicated, mm. a complicated yeah, yeah. Uh, response. But, you know, why, why American history? Yeah, well, I mean, to put a finer point on it, I'm really interested in American religion. So that's, that's, and America is a much more, quote unquote, religious place than Australia is. Um, in Australia, it's much more, at least when I, I mean, this is starting to change because of social media, but growing up in Australia, it was very much, you don't talk about sex, religion, or politics. And, you know, I was interested in all three, one more, one more <laughs> as, than the other at different as one time is. periods. <laughs> yeah. You know, the priorities changed, sure. as you can imagine, yeah. when I hit puberty. But regardless, um, uh, no, like I was really interested in religion. And um, basically, when I started dating my now wife, an American, um, an American woman, uh, I, I just was like, well, you know, I'm dating an American, so I should probably learn a bit about American history. And I just got bit by the bug. Um, I, I was like, wow, there's like so much to learn. And it was just all so fascinating. And I think there's, I think the American people are just junkies for their own history, mm. uh, which, you know, Michael Haddam will tell you uh, with his great book. But it is really interesting that like the American populace, both left and right, conservative, progressive, they're all history junkies. In Australia, I really didn't find that. Like there was much more niche where, You'll find people who are Ned Kelly junkies or sure. Anzac history junkies, but it's not like the average Australian, in my anecdotal experience, was really interested in Australian history. In everywhere I go in America, there's somebody who's got some kind of niche historical subject they're interested in um, and that they love watching movies about or TV shows or reading or podcasts. And that just really fascinated me. Um, but I also think a part of it is that America is such a looming cultural influence for us in Australia. So even when we're not, even when I'm not formally studying American religion or American history, we're being fed American historical movies and TV shows and, um, you know, watching Barack Obama become president. So kind of like living American history by proxy in a sense. So American history and America, even from Australia at a very early age was inescapable. Hmm. It's interesting because um, uh, going to uh, school in England and keeping in touch, um, I always am envious of how English are so much more interested in their history. I mean, where that you can have the phenomenon of the Teledon, which is not simply because of the amount of, of time that BBC gives to cultural historical programming. I mean, there's something else going on. Um, and the, um, yeah, I just, it, it's, uh, it, I think it's a lot easier to be an independent historian in, in, in Britain, uh, 
than it is in the States. Now, that might be because Mm -hmm. they have so much, people would say, but their interests are confined to fairly, um, you know, tutors are cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, The historical passions in England do go to very relatively confined periods. Given oh, that's the, this. I can, as someone who does the Jacksonian period, I completely right. agree. Like, yeah, because you go, like, you can see the best way to test this, and I'm sure you would agree. You go to a bookstore and you see which time period gets its own section. Yeah, and in America, it's like World War II. colonial, revolution, civil war, world wars, and that's about it. That, that's like, about it. That's about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there probably is a group of people somewhere interested in the Gilded Age. But I haven't yeah. met them yet. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. It's you're gonna much more find people in, who can tell you backwards about the Battle of Gettysburg or something mm-hmm. yeah, than sure. than like the politics of Reconstruction. Yeah, right. Well, that's I, I. My theory has been always been that one of the the problems is where the American survey stops in high school and college, which is always you know you always end. You're supposed to end or begin with Reconstruction, and what usually happens is you're rushing too fast to cover Reconstruction as it should be covered, and then the next semester, the the teacher, the professor says, "Well, they probably already got Reconstruction, so let me just move mm. on to like industrial industrialization, industrial action." Yeah, that benefits. I've taught the survey once, and because the Jacksonian period is like to like a little beyond the middle, I kind of get the luxury of soaking it up and like Jacksonizing everyone. So yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Um, so you know, what is it about? Do you, um, in 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 England, my best friends were Australian. What is it about Australians and Americans? Because the Brits will say, you know, we can take the piss with Australians, and you can't like you know can't joke around with. Um, Americans are too, you know, they're just too stiff. Um, I didn't find no, no that. lies detect, no lies detected. I did. I didn't find that to be the case. It was really kind of weird how, you know, in the Australians, Americans, and South Africans kind of gravitated together. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe the English didn't, you know, the English don't want to have friends or something like that. That could be the case, but it, it, I don't know what it is. I mean, I. I definitely find it much truer that Australians are much e- like taking yourself so seriously in Australia is like a cardinal sin. Espe- mm-hmm. So here's like an academic anecdote. I've never called so many people professor and doctor in my life before coming here. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying you haven't earned it. I'm not saying you don't deserve the title. That's not what I'm saying. But in Australia, when you go to u- like the fact that we call it uni, not university, right. although we abbreviate everything. Like it is, it if if a professor. I mean, we don't even use the term professor because that's a. It's a different. You have to really earn the title, right? Of professor. So it's it's the English system where you're not. Yes, yes. You're, there's only one or two professors per per what we call department or faculty. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only professor I ever met was Professor Sim at ACU. But regardless, um, uh, if if you were the type of lecturer who demanded to be called doctor, you would immediately be mocked by not just students but by like members of your own department it, mm-hmm. like it's 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 much more kind of casual um casual sort of atmosphere so going to america and then just doctor so-and-so doctor this doctor that it's a very that took me some getting used to um to be honest um, yeah that it, that was very different it's funny how that's such a well we could get into the entire um joe epstein joe biden kerfuffle um mm-hmm. but it is funny how that that of course, and that on Twitter 
that, um, how shall we say, there's a lot of amour propre um, going on, um, and there is that 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 touches a, a certain distinct red button in American higher education. Uh, I have some theories, but I probably shouldn't share them. Fair enough. So, um, what is it with you and bespoke suiting? This is not something that oh. I discovered about you in Age of Jackson. Something I only <laughs> discovered on Twitter, starting to follow you on Twitter. I mean, yes. What the hell? Well, I don't own a bespoke suit. Let's okay, make that let's, clear. I, 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 neither do I. Um, so I, I, I am into clothing. Um, look, there, I can give you, I can give you two answers. I can give you the sort of, you know, progressive woke answer. Okay, um, go ahead. Or try, can, try them I, all. Try them all. No, look, look. I this is very in a sort of in a more sincere way. The th- one of the things I love about more purposeful. Um, clothing and wardrobing is that um, it makes you more conscious about what you're buying rather than just going out and buying crap that's going to fall apart in a couple of months and then it's just seasonal and uh, and by seasonal I mean fashion seasons that like mm-hmm. it's in one month and then it's out the next mm-hmm. um, if we're, if people are really serious about reducing their carbon footprint and the like um, being far more intentional about their clothing I think is one way you can do that and something I love about the men's space world is that 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 there is an intention that um, you go onto Reddit and it's like buy it for life debates about um, how long things will last. Watching people post pictures of jackets they've had for twenty years and how how well they've aged or how well they've kept um, that you know just being being I wouldn't say cheap but rather you know practical thrifty practical thrifty yeah yes. um, it's like okay like this this will be more expensive up front, but I won't have to keep buying it. Things like that. Beyond that, the more serious answer is it just fits better. Yeah. Like it, it just having stuff. Once you have stuff that is made for your body and your physique and for you and your style and your tastes and for different occasions, it's very hard to go back. Um, so I got into this um, because I worked at a jewelry store for quite some time. What'd you do? Really- what'd, you, what'd you do there? Oh, I sold watches. Um, so I'm a Did you big like watch. It? Did you like the, the, the selling stuff? I, uh, I worked you know, in grad in grad school. I worked in a cigar store, uh, and I loved I loved selling things. Yeah, I actually love selling things myself as well. Um, I I'm an if you can't tell, I'm an extrovert. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why we're I, in the, we're in the one percent of uh, of academics. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's sort of strange. It's strange to discover that you all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who are not. Yes. That's definitely a struggle I've had as somebody who is like, um, you know, like people ask me about like, how did you meet Charles Sellers? How did that happen? It's like, I emailed him. Like, <laughs> like, like, it's like, Oh, I would never do that. And it's like, well, then you'll never meet Charles Sellers. Like, so yeah. anyway, well, but well, like, no, I mean, I, I, we're going to, we could talk about this later, but this is why I started the podcast. I, I, I'm an extrovert, but I can be at a conference. I'm a, I'm a wallflower and a shrinking violet. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I don't want to go and bother Pauline Mayer, rest in peace, genuflection and her and, uh, ritual genuflection. Um, but I did, but it's a lot more fun to mm. email someone and say, Hey, you've got a book out, you know, let's mm. talk about it. And yeah, uh, that's, this is the perfect excuse to meet people. That's what a, a yes. podcast for me is, is to talk to very interesting people at least once a week. It's how I got to meet Sean Lewentz. It's yep. how he got on my committee. So there's that. Uh, but no, I love selling stuff. I love, I love the hustle. I love the sell. Um, 
now as for watch i I got bit by the watch bug i love (laughs) watches um you know i'll be on my ipad and if my wife's like oh what are you looking at if i say porn she knows i'm looking at watches um (laughs) because you know they're like exorbitantly expensive that i can't afford um but no, i i love horology i love watches I, you know, I love shoes and looking at all that so stuff what we, this is a question uh, i never thought i would ask someone on this sure. podcast if sure. i if someone's looking for something in the um well-made but not insane yep. range uh, what's what, not insane what is okay. not in, please don't say that because like i'll say like I'll give you an a thousand dollar watch, and people will say that's insane. Yeah, I'll that's give right. Five hundred dollar watch. Of me, and the- think you're talking to an Italian peasant here, you know, uh, who who doesn't believe in you know who is also wants to have a watch for thirty years, okay, right? okay, okay, the rest of his life. But at the same time, you know, I'm from a long line of people who, when they buy a car, goes to bed because they feel ill, right? You know, yeah, I, I get that. Okay. Um, Okay, I'm gonna. Sh- okay, it's like three hundred bucks acceptable. That is extremely acceptable. That okay. would seem to me to be a, a great value. I I, I would agree. Um, okay, I'm gonna share a piece with you. Now, for my money, I think in the three hundred dollar range, you've really got like two options. Um, it depends if you're a dressier guy or a more athletic, sportsy. Uh, you know, more sports guy. Um, where What's- are you? So my my first answer would be a Seiko. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the choice honestly, of Ro- the, the choice of Roger Moore during his James Bond years, I believe, or was that this a is true? Oh yeah. Uh, no, he no he did wear. Oh god, that's now I'm failing. I'm like losing my credentials as we speak. Yeah. No, I think um, it was a Seiko. I, I do think it was a Seiko. Um, now you can get this watch cheaper. I'm trying to find the blue version. Okay. Oh, here we go. Okay. I got. That, I got it. That's um, the blue dial. I love those things. Yeah, blue. I, I think if you're going to buy a dressy watch, I think a blue dial is much more versatile. It's a, and the, when you see the blue on this thing, you're gonna you're gonna be impressed. The the glint the glint on it is just absolutely. Uh, listeners beautiful. who have not already passed out in desperation that we're talking about, uh, you can find this link in the show notes. Yes. Um, oh, here it is. Here we go. So you can get this cheaper. But this is a good, even at this price, I think this is a bargain. Okay. I, I will, we will have the link. And, you know, I wish we had an Amazon, uh, I wish we had some kind of Amazon deal. Imagine the percentage we could reap back if, uh, if only just uh, three or four of our listeners uh, purchased uh, his, from Amazon. What do you think? I think Seiko, it's, Seiko Presage. Uh, I like it. You um, like it? Yeah, I do. That's, yeah, uh, so the, it's a it's got a beautiful like dial that's like it, like glints in the sunlight really mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. It's a a wonderful. It's a great uh, twenty three joule automatic movement, so you don't have to bother changing a battery, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's uh, would be my first. If you're more of a dressy guy, like that's the watch mm-hmm. I would I would recommend. Do you now, do you look at the sport? Do you look at the used watch market much? I mean, are you the what? Looking- used watches um oh yeah uh, this the watch i'm wearing is used yeah um so if i i would say um unless you're buying a rolex which um that's a whole different animal um why why is that a whole different animal oh boy how much time you got so basically the <laughs> rolex mar- the rolex market is basically 
for lack of a better word, corrupt. So there, there is not enough product to suffice. There is not enough product, quote unquote. It's much more like diamonds where there really is enough product, but they keep it back in vaults and mm-hmm. things like that. So for example, um, my local Kansas City Rolex dealer will only get, say, five Rolex Submariners a year. Now, that's a, that's a, the Submariner is by far the most popular Rolex watch you can get. Retail, it is only $8,000. I know $8,000 is a lot of money, but bear with me. Because it is such a rare thing to find, because authorized dealers only get so many a year, the premium they command on the gray market is insane. So even though brand new, you can get it for eight grand, you can flip that and sell it on the gray market for anywhere between 12 to 15 because wow. that's how so that's is, how big the demand is. This is exactly what's happening these days for for hypercars. I was reading how mm. um, it, one of these, I forget who it was. I think, oh yeah, Maserati, I think it's coming out with a, a supercar, hypercar. And they're trying to, they're, uh, I think it was them, or who's, they're coming out with questionnaires for potential owners to somehow detect whether or not they're going to flip it. Uh, because yes, the, yes. the profits are going to be so much higher after they do that, which is kind of crazy. So Ro- Rolex yeah. is doing that too. My Rolex dealer, basically, if you want to buy a Rolex sports watch these days, you have to first get in the door by buying something most people don't want. So you have to buy like a Datejust. Um, and they're they're not cheap. They're a, a Datejust, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love a Datejust, but still <laughs> a, an entry level Datejust is like, six to eight to 10 grand, depending how much gold you want. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a strategy that a lot of people use is they buy their wives a, Ro- a Rolex first, and then they get themselves endeared that they're not going to flip it, or they'll buy something else. Like they'll go to the Amiga cabinet, buy an Amiga and be like, Hey, Steve, I really, really am not, I swear to God, I'm not going to, but then, but that, that's just Submariners. Wait till you get to Daytona's. Daytona's, you can, retail they're like 12 15k you can flip them for like 30k because they're even <laughs> they are even rarer uh, the markets are fascinating uh, and and yes. also when and when they're combined with fashion then they get really crazy um yeah the I mean, this, i'll show you the one I'm... I'm sorry to break the mood but oh, let's sorry. talk about your dissertation sure so um what's it about so the ele- the elevator pitch is basically my dissertation is about the rise of Andrew Jackson and the formation of the second party system and how religion influences both Jackson's rise and the solidification of the battle lines along religious grounds between what we come to know as the Jacksonian Democratic Party and the Whig Party. So um okay, so what's the argument that that it does <laughs> uh so basically, my the core argument that I've been teasing out lately is that with the collapse of the first party system, we all know this, that there is a huge amount of chaos in the election of 1824. Everybody, like there's too many candidates, there's a plurality of votes, even though Jackson is the most popular candidate, the House of Representatives picks John Quincy Adams. This is well covered ground and you and your listeners probably know it pretty darn well. What we also know from this time period is that there are all these revivals going on and there's religious awakenings going on and there's been much more fervent excitement for religious renewal. 
my story combines that too in many ways that because of the collapse of the first party system uh, there's all these different religious pundits shall we say although they wouldn't see themselves that way that are really excited that maybe they can restore a kind of godly Christian republic that they that they've had it that with the specter of Jeffersonianism and deism maybe it's being banished and with it we could have a true Christian president because the last couple of presidents if they haven't been nominally religious they've not really been religious at all so maybe we can have an explicitly Christian president and what I've discovered is that many evangelicals and religious voters believe Andrew Jackson is that guy. They are very excited that it could be Jackson. Now, with Jackson and religion comes all sorts of problems, problems that the people who are diehard for him have to smooth over, have to correct, have to kind of gloss over. But there's also nervousness of people who are like, look, I like Jackson. He's a war hero. Respect the guy. But... I don't know, man, I got worries about this or that, you know, riding his horse on the Sabbath. But then that's where apologists can come in and say, look, I know Jackson's got his problems, but John Quincy Adams is a Unitarian. For heaven's sake, we can't have a Unitarian, non-Trinitarian in the White House. So that's sort of the election stuff. The big overarching thesis that, I, you know, the big meaty stuff is that Jackson has helped win the presidency with these voters. And then he disappoints them. Mm -hmm. Jackson, as president, isolates and disappoints many of these religious voters, so much so that the Whigs, or what becomes the Whigs, they drive, they, Jackson drives them to them. So um, Jackson puts Roger Tawney on the Supreme Court, a Roman Catholic. Uh, Jackson refused to institute a prayer, a day of prayer and fasting during the cholera epidemic. Uh, Jackson backs, uh, uh, during the petticoat affair, Jackson doesn't, uh, doesn't support the ministers who are trying to go after John Eaton and his wife. Um, and many of this creates an opening, but on the flip side, he doesn't just isolate evangelicals. He also excites Jews, Roman Catholics, deists and the like. So that's the, that's it in a nutshell. Um, if you want like a n more nerdy answer, I'm writing a prequel to Richard Cowardine's uh, book. That was my, obviously yeah. it's a book I know pretty well. Um, yeah. Do you know Cowardine? Well, yeah. Cause he was, he, he and how uh, traded the baton when I was, when I was a kid there. Uh, so yeah, yeah so to, I, to my, to Daniel Walker Howe and Richard Cowardine, two of my favorite people in academia. Um, yeah, they've both been very friend. I mean, I was on a panel with Howe and he respectfully in the most British way possible, you know, even though he's not British though, is he? No, he's not. Uh, but it's, yeah, it, it's it, an enculturation and we, we can't help. Yeah. It in that sort of enculturated manner, he like disagreed with me in the most polite manner possible, but politely told me he strongly disagreed with my character. Right. He basically, he basically said in a really polite way, I disagree with you, but prove me wrong, which was really, really gracious. That is, um, that is actually how he does a tutorial. Ah. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, I have to say it's, it's, uh, it's a really good teaching strategy too. And, and I, when I, I told Cowardine, I told Cowardine what I was working on and he was just jumping for joy. Like, yes, like for years I've said that like, we really need to pay attention to the Democrats. Like we're too, obs that's part, this is part of the historic listeners for the, for the historiographic nerds. Yeah. Because so much, when we say religion and politics in the antebellum area, era, Ooh, we, we, 
we basically mean evangelicals. And by proxy, we mean Whigs, which is fine. But I'm trying to say there are Roman Catholics out there. There are Jews out there. There are non-evangelical Christians out there. And when we're talking about Whigs and Democrats, we're often talking about pre-Civil War brewing 1840s, 1850s stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to go for the 1820s yeah. and 30s to get there. So uh, that's what my book is doing. I'm starting to think about like social. I mean, this is not something you can do, but hopefully your book will inspire other studies like this. I'm thinking about how could it, we trace um, uh, the trans- political transformation of a specific religious communities over time, mm. you know, a, a, as a church or a district of church or a presbytery or, or whatever. Um, as they sh- shift allegiance. I'm, and I'm t- trying, starting to think of places where you might be able to see that, like the Shenandoah Valley. Um, well, you, I mean, Paul Johnson basically does that with Shopkeepers Millennium. Mm-hmm. Um, ha- explore The problem is how do you do that on a national level? That's like the truth. Well, that, that, that requires a lot of computers and graduate students. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I, although I imagine that could probably be done with enough, um, with enough uh, Mac minis hooked up as servers. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> um, we're we are going to be we're entering into I think a new I've said this before um, we're entering into sort of a data science revolution that should uh, start to affect history I hope and maybe lead to uh, the social history part two. Mm. Well, yeah, like I'm relying a lot on the work of the ethnocultural historians, mm-hmm. um, and I have my own critiques of them, but they had a lot of data that's been helpful for me. My problem with the ethnocultural historians is they can tell me that Irish Catholics backed the Jacksonians, but they're not very good at telling me why. Which is like that, kind of an essential question for a historian. Um, like, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I want to unpack that more. And also, uh, my one of my biggest, like, coming from religious studies, I'm actually interested in the theology. I'm actually interested in the theological school and argument. So when Ezra Stiles, Eli, one of Jackson's right-hand men with uh, ministry, when he backs Jackson... I don't think he's just, you know, twirling his mustache, talking about like evangelicals and political power, although I'm sure there's a that there's that element. But you know, he's relying on a deep political tradition that you can trace um, back to back to Yale, back to Cotton Affer, even yeah. like about like what is the appropriate role of the church and the state. Like mm-hmm. he is coming from a religious, theological, political tradition that doesn't see the separation of church and state like we do. Um, right. And in fact, like he it's, and that's a, it's not like he wants a theocracy as well, which is sometimes how he's characterized. That's, too, um, that's so that's ridiculously binary dialect. Yes, I mean, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, we uh, we're starting to come towards as much time as I want to spend on a bonus po- podcast. And I don't, I don't want to drag you away from your writing too much, uh, but so let's, let's just talk about your podcast a little bit because it's great. Sure. Um, so, uh, we've kind of established why you're, you're an extrovert. You like talking to people. Um, I, I feel the same way. Uh, this is a great way of doing it, uh, talking to really interesting people. So what do you find, uh, other than finding a way of meeting interesting people? Um, what do you find very, what do you find enjoyable about it? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I love it. The fact that people use it and they find it helpful and educational. Like that's, I, I did that for that reason. I wanted to educate people about a time period that a lot of people skip over or don't really know that much about. So, you know, when people reach out to me and say that, oh, I found this interesting or, hey, I really want to learn more about 
anything, what would you recommend? Like just today, I had somebody slide into my DMs, as the youth say, and uh, they they sent me an a, an article asking like, oh, like I just read this thanks to your podcast, and like, what else should I read on the subject? So like, that's really that's really great. Mm-hmm. Free books is nice. Getting free books from the publisher is always nice. It takes a um, while, but eventually they come. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's for sure. Um, especially it takes in a, a pandemic. Couple, couple years to break in right at least it yeah. took me a couple of pe- people to realize that i met was serious about it and meant to keep on keep on doing it um yeah but, i think after the first year things got a lot easier yeah. for me um but beyond that and the meeting people like it is you know it, it's i the ritual of it's quite nice as well and i like on the educational front i've said this to other people but Look, I know what the Panic of eighteen nineteen was. I know what Indian removal was. You know, like, but there's something really interesting about asking a question you know the answer to, and listening to three different people answer it differently. Because I think it really improves your own teaching. It gives you mm-hmm. new insights. And like, there are some people who just like answer. Like when I ask somebody, you know, like, oh, we're walking past a statue of so and so. And you've got a group of tourists. What would you say to them? What would be your 101? There are some answers that are like, "Damn, that's good." Like, mm-hmm. why didn't I think of that? And mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy improving my own teaching and practicing. And hopefully, that improves other people's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I noticed that you do something which you know I I, I like for you. I, I'm not sure I, I would do it. it was that you always ask that question about the statue. You yeah. Ask the, you ask the origin story. There's there is a there is a lit there is a very how should I say, a liturgical uh, emphasis to the way that you do the podcast, which is is nice. Um, uh, we all have to do it our own way. Uh, mm-hmm. And I can admire the way someone else does the podcast uh, without and, and learn from it without necessarily copying it all. What, what, right. what podcast have you found influential in, in, in putting together your in putting together your approach or your sensibility? Well, I mean, the most influential podcast for me was definitely Ben Franklin's World with Liz Covart. Sure. Because, because like, I, I know Liz, Liz has always been friendly to me. Um, and I know Liz, the, back to kind of that other answer I just gave, I, Liz has a PhD and she's an expert and she's asking basic questions. And that's because like, they're not, they're, you don't know who's listening. Like, and if you want to reach a wide audience, asking questions like that is, the, that's the way how you like catch the most fish. So like that style of really trying to be accessible and broad and really letting the the listener uh, the listeners in on a bigger conversation and draw them in. Liz's approach to that I think is great. Um, uh, National Review has a podcast called um, oh, what's it called? The Bookmonger and that's only 15 minutes. It's only 10 15 minutes and it's kind of Amateurs. crazy. <laughs> well, it's kind of crazy because it's it's very much like elevator pitching. And I know it is very it is yeah, and it's it's really interesting. Like um, he only gets to ask like three to five questions, and it, it, it's really quite impressive. Like how they can distill a book like in mm-hmm. in that many questions. So I find that listening to that to be really interesting as well because it kind of can help you cut away the fat as well. And like what would what would be a question that would be both appealing to a broad lay audience but also give something interesting that isn't why didn't you write why did you write this book you know mm-hmm. which is an essential question but still 
Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think uh, what else. I have to say, if, n- not that anyone else cares, but uh, the biggest influence on me was um, Radio 4 program with uh, Melvin Bragg called In Our Time. Oh, yeah. Which is um, it's not a podcast, but it's most of the NPR stuff that dominates the podcast are not podcasts either. But it is the best uh, intellectual, general intellectual program anywhere, hands down. I'll, I stake my money on it because he is a very experienced broadcaster. He um, also has immense cultural power in Britain, uh, which is hard to explain to people from the United States or Australia. Um, and uh, that so- someone could do that. And so people, um, you know, three or four people like Richard Carradine or German McCullough or, you know, uh, Patricia, Patricia Farah, or I could come up with other British um, academics will show up and actually write notes for him, which he will then synthesize into this crackling 40 to 50 minute conversation. And that, mm. you know, ever since I first heard it, I, I said to myself, I want to do something like that. Mm. Um, somehow he's able to be approachable without being um, cartoonishly, you know, mm-hmm. he, there's some, he presupposes some level, he, he pursue, presumes that the audience is clever, but ignorant. Yeah. Which is, that's... which is, which is better than presuming stupid, but knows facts. Yeah. Uh, probably like an unrelated podcast. Um, <coughs> pardon me. Um, I write for The Bulwark and um, Sonny Bunch, who's their movie critic, he has a movie interview podcast called The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. And he's very good at asking follow-up questions. Like, oh, like he'll have preset questions, but then his, his um, guests will say something interesting. He's very good at asking like a follow-up and that, is something I've been trying to think about how to improve. But he, he ends, he started to end the podcast recently by saying, um, is there any question I should have asked you that I didn't? And I, yeah. I've been thinking about employing that myself. Yeah, I've, I've done that a couple of times. I, um, do you provide questions in advance? Yes, yeah, I try okay. to, yeah. Yeah, I, I call them, I hate to call them, I feel like people really demand that. Um, and uh, I did it from the beginning without the demand. I called them waypoints. Mm-hmm. I said, these are points in your book that I'd like to pass by. The conversation is a walk. I'd like to pass by these points in the course of our conversation. We may not get by all of them. Some of them we might run by, you know, to continue the metaphor to unreasonable lengths. Uh, but this is basically our passage. They don't necessarily correspond with the way the book flows. I, yeah. you know, I have my own ends sometimes. Yeah, I, I do provide like pretty much like these are the questions I'm going to ask. There's usually a few I don't ask that evolve from natural conversation. But I, I find for junior scholars who have never been on a podcast before, they've told me it's been very helpful to prepare and get ready. Sometimes it's too helpful because then they can prepare like mini lectures. And that's not what I'm after. Yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, but then like you can see the like. When I had Alan Taylor, for example, didn't he told me flat out he doesn't read like he didn't need any prep. You know, he's Alan Taylor. But um, like you can kind of tell he's been on a million different podcasts and TV shows. So he knows how to like he's just like fascinating to behold, like in terms of how he answers questions and things like that. Um, sometimes that can be like really good. Um, sometimes some guests can be a little too scripted. Um yeah. I can tell you who off the record. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, I, I, what the oddly enough, the the problem is, um, I think it was Peter Stearns, 
who is an eminent uh, scholar, world, uh, world historian, and his uh, responses were so lapidary and tight that mm. it was like, oh my God, it's only 20 minutes have gone by and I've almost run out of questions. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, and I didn't know, they were so impenetrable and complete. I wasn't sure how to ask a follow-up, you know, um, because there was nothing to chip away at and, you know, to, to, to follow up on. It's very difficult to have a person who's, who's smart like that. So what do you wish that you could do that you're not doing already in the podcast? I think about this a lot. Because oh, I, 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 I thought that I would be doing a podcast with at least two other people mm. uh, and quickly realized the scheduling uh, headaches were immense to do that. I wanted to do more um, disagreements. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I always, one of the first sort of PowerPoint slides I used to put up when I was teaching um, history was uh, Peter Gale, History is an Argument Without End. Um, and I wanted to show that in the actual way that the podcast worked. It turns out not only is it hard to get two people scheduled in the same time slot, it's hard to get historians to agree to argue, which you would not think going to conferences. But for whatever reason, they're like, oh, I don't really want to do that. Uh, I, 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 you know, can I, I follow up with that? Yeah. I think it's different when they know they're being recorded. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, you know, do you, do you really want, do you really, you know, in the Charles Sellers versus Daniel Walker Howe versus Sean LeWentz, Jacksonian America debate, do you really want your side, your side recorded for posterity, how you feel about the other's book? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I still, I think one of the best things I could do for like, even for history and historical thinking would be to have I really I watch those economist sponsor intelligence squared debates yeah they, yes. they have the parliamentary you know they have the, a, a preliminary vote on the question and then a follow up I think that would be epic to have things on like Indian removal you know oh, uh, uh, to do things like I think on Confederate monuments mm. Confederate um, monuments I could see that would no be... I mean by I mean the state of you know very I could think of various things uh you know, uh, back to some of our conversations, China, China in the seven, in the 17th century, 18th, more esoteric things perhaps, but really important things about the openness or unopenness of the Qing dynasty. Um, so you could me, go on. I think that would be a really useful thing. So for me, my two answers would be a part of me would love to do like a narrative history, like sure. do produce a kind of episodic narrative similar to like the, the series that, um, presidents of people too, um, how they had pre-recordings of different experts with music and they kind of told a story, but using academic opinion to help pepper it with debate and things like that. Um, my other wish is very similar to you. I, so I do history of history episodes. And to me, like that's been the idea for me that maybe I could do them rather than being a playing ignorant i actually do know these books and have opinions mm -hmm. so maybe that would be a good place to have panel discussions with multiple guests but it's really hard as you say for scheduling and also it's really hard to get people to talk about books they didn't write um so yeah. that that's tricky i've but only my, done my, yeah i've only done one book club with bob elder as a matter of fact on ed baptist book if, if I was made of money, my dream would be a Netflix series about what happened with uh, arming America. That's like my dream. 
<laughs> we can talk about that. Uh, we That's something I don't want to record right now. I can tell you about that after we stop recording. All right. Well, my guest today has been Daniel Engalata. He's the host of The Age of Jackson. Where can people find you in all the usual places? Well, thank you very much for hosting me. You can find me on all sorts of social media at Daniel Golotta, G-U-L-L-O-T-T-A, at Twitter, on Instagram. If you're interested in my opinions, I'm on The Bulwark. I've written for Washington Post. Um, I've got a piece coming out with The Critic. Um, if you're interested in menswear, I'm starting to write regularly for PutThisOn.com. And uh, yeah, uh, I'm all over the place. And you can find the podcast, just search whatever you want, and you can find the Age of Jackson podcast. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 